Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Dr. John Abramson's new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It, tells the inside story of how Big Pharma's pursuit of increasingly higher profits corrupts medical knowledge, misleads doctors, misdirects American healthcare, and in the process harms our health. It's published by Mariner Books. Dr. Abramson is a member of the Harvard Medical School faculty and an expert in pharmaceutical litigation. He played a key role in the investigation of Vioxx and the litigation that eventually led to that drug being pulled from the market, as well as billions of dollars to be paid in settlements by Merck, its manufacturer. He's also helped to expose numerous conflicts of interest between regulators, medical journals, and drug companies. And I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Abramson to our show now. Hello. Hello, Leonard. Thanks for having me. Hasn't America's healthcare system been accused of prioritizing corporate interests over the public good? It has, uh, but it's uh, hard to imagine the extent to which that prioritization of profits over Americans' health is harming Americans. Well, the U.S. spends more on healthcare than any other country, over $1.5 trillion annually on healthcare compared to other wealthy countries. So, why does the amount of time Americans live in, in good health rank 68th in the world? That's exactly right. From 2000 to 2019, our ranking in the world on healthy life expectancy declined from 38th in 2000 to 68th in 2019. And that happened while we were spending the equivalent of what is now $1.5 trillion extra on healthcare. So not only do we have health, is the health of Americans falling disastrously behind the health of other developed countries and many underdeveloped countries, uh, we're getting bankrupted. Our national treasury is getting bankrupted uh, to the tune of $1.5 trillion a year to pay for this excessively expensive, but uh, a disastrously ineffective healthcare. Now the term big pharma is invoked in most discussions of the current situation. How should we define big pharma? Big pharma is the large pharmaceutical companies. And uh, that term distinguishes uh, from between the large companies and the small companies. Typically the small companies are uh, startup, they're uh, developing uh, new products. And when those products get to the point where they're going to have clinical utility, oftentimes the large companies step in and buy those smaller companies uh, to assist with the marketing um, uh, of the drug. And don't they also fund most clinical trials? Does that allow Big Pharma to control the medical research agenda? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the critical and, and nearly invisible problems uh, in American healthcare. The 86% um, of clinical trials are now funded uh, by private industry. And what, what that leads to is that the body of knowledge that is developed through medical research that doctors receive and are taught to accept as defining the way they should uh, take care of their patients that body is so epidemiologically unbalanced that 96% of our medical research is about new drugs and devices. That leaves only 4% of our medical research to address the overall health of the American people. Hmm. And that it's just such a mismatch with the epidemiology of Americans' health. 
about 20% of our health is determined by our health care, and 80% of our health is determined by how we live our lives. But the problem is that the return on financial investment is so much greater when it's drugs and devices that are being researched, that the knowledge is created about these profit-generating pro uh, products instead of health-generating approaches to healthcare. Well, how is Big Pharma able to keep the real data from its clinical trials as corporate secrets and shape the information available to healthcare professionals? Uh, they just claim ownership, and uh, there is not, um, there's no entity that makes them make it transparent. But isn't one of Pharma's best-kept secrets that the peer reviewers who are charged with ensuring the accuracy and completeness of the clinical trial reports published in medical journals don't have access to complete data and, and have to rely on manufacturer influence summaries? That's exactly right. And very few doctors understand that. I mean, we're, we're taught it's hammered into our heads in training um, that this gold standard of good medical care is to practice evidence-based medicine, which means uh, to uh, follow the uh, results of uh, clinical trials that are published in reputable journals that are peer-reviewed. That peer review is supposed to assure doctors that what they're reading has been vetted, the accuracy and reasonable completeness of the data has been reviewed by the peer reviewers, but it's a sham the peer reviewers don't have access to the real data. They accept almost exclusively, not 100% exclusively, but almost exclusively, they accept the data that are in the manuscripts that are submitted for publication. And those manuscripts typically are, um, they're overwhelmingly uh, manufacturer-sponsored trials, and the manufacturers play a role in preparing those manuscripts. So it, it's almost like, uh, we're playing uh, a championship uh, athletic game and there are no referees in this. The drug companies uh, control the research agenda and they control the data and they and peer review does not provide a counterbalancing uh, uh, protection of the public. So we've got doctors who have been taught to trust information that is pretty much provided by the drug companies in order to increase the profits that they return to their shareholders and investors. So all the sources that doctors may turn to for reliable information face considerable pressure to push the industry line? Well, I'd say the answer is yes, but I'd say it's slightly differently. The sources that doctors have been taught to trust, be it peer-reviewed articles in medical journals or clinical practice guidelines, um, recommendations from um, nonprofit organizations and from uh, the federal government's uh, quality uh, uh, assurance programs, all of that information, the, the basic building blocks of that information is the unvetted clinical trial results that are published in the medical journals. So for example, the statin guidelines, uh, the current statin guidelines recommend that 50% of American adults between the ages of 40 and 75 be treated with a cholesterol-lowering statin drug. We can talk about the specifics mm -hmm. of that and which groups benefit how much. But the point here is that 50% of Americans between the age of 40 and 75 are 
being advised to take a statin. Their doctors are being advised that quality medical care uh, calls for them to prescribe statins. And nobody's seen the actual data from the clinical trials. The guidelines are not based on the actual data from the clinical trials. They're based on the data summaries that are published in the medical journals and the experts who write the guidelines don't have access to the data. You point out that statins are often prescribed for women based on clinical trials that show their effectiveness for men. That's exactly right. And the drug... And doctors the, are the, unaware of that? Doctors are unaware of that. I mean, I, in the Overdosed America, the book I wrote in 2004, I discussed this issue that uh, the statins were recommended for women at a certain level of risk and uh, in the summary, summaries of the uh, clinical guidelines that were published in the journals that doctors read, it said that, that the evidence shows that the statins are effective for women. In the long form of those guidelines on page, I think it was 211, it said that uh, the exact quote was data to support the uh, recommendation of statins for women is generally lacking and the recommendations are made on extrapolation of data from men. Are statins overused, overprescribed? Uh, in my opinion, it is. I mean, there's. Uh, here are the facts. For, uh, for women, it's hard to make a case that we've got a reduction in mortality. For women who do not have heart disease, it's hard to make a case that we reduce the risk of mortality. For men who have not had heart disease, it similarly is hard to make the case that the statins reduce mort mortality significantly. And you have to treat between 100 and 140 men or women for five years with a statin in order to prevent one non-fatal heart attack. And the other 99 or 139 people who take a statin for five years won't get a benefit. You're a former family physician. How aware were you of the problems within the system at the time? Um, I was not, Leonard, and, and that, that's an important part of my story. Uh, I was an enthusiastic uh, family physician who did his best to bring evidence-based medicine to his patients. And uh, it wasn't until I saw how misrepresented the uh, benefits and harms of the arthritis and pain reliever Vioxx, Merck's drug Vioxx, how it had been misrepresented in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and when I, <clears throat> when I understood how the FDA had data that showed that Vioxx was a dangerous drug, but the journals were publishing data that claimed it was safer than over-the-counter drugs, not more dangerous, I realized there was something dreadfully wrong with this. And that was in uh, 2001. And that's when I left my practice of 20 years to write Overdosed America to figure out what I could figure out. Now, that book came out in 2004. Vioxx was pulled a week after it came out. Um, it wasn't my doing. I may have had some indirect effect, but it wasn't primarily my doing. But it led to a second career for me as an expert in litigation. And in that second career, I got to see what was inside the corporate computers. For, for about 10 years, I worked as an expert. And after signing a confidentiality agreement, I would get access to the computer hard drives 
from the relevant executives and scientists within a drug company. And I got to piece together what was actually happening. So the question that you asked, did I, was I aware of this uh, when I was a practicing doctor? The answer is I really wasn't because I couldn't be, because no doctor can be, because the data are hidden. So but as a I result, expert, don't doctors end up prescribing expensive new drugs for conditions where they may not be useful or may in any case be no more effective than older, cheaper drugs or even more absolute, dangerous? Yes, absolutely. It turns out that about one out of four of the truly new drugs, it's called new molecular entities, not uh, extended release forms or new combinations of drugs, but truly new drugs, one out of four of those drugs are shown to be superior to previously available therapies, 25%. And the problem in the United States, the reason why our healthcare is so much more expensive than in the other wealthy countries is that we don't have a mechanism to inform doctors about how new drugs compare to older therapies or lifestyle modification. So one out of four new drugs is truly a breakthrough but doctors have no way of knowing which one out of the four new drugs it is. And all four drugs are marketed uh, uh, with equal vigor so that docs can't tell which drugs are, are the most effective and most efficient for their patients. And in the case of the of Vioxx, didn't Merck deliberately withhold evidence that that arthritis drug could increase the risk of heart attacks and strokes for people with heart conditions? They did. They did. Isn't and that criminal? Th that, uh, it is criminal. And they pled guilty to a criminal charge and they got fined a billion dollars but uh, by the Department of Justice. But nobody went to jail. And Merck did not get disbarred from selling drugs to Medicare. And everyone went on about their business. And, and in fact, the current CEO of Merck was the uh, chief defense counsel of Merck uh, during those years. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Dr. John Abramson, whose newest book is Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. It is published by Mariner Books. Don't you claim that Americans tend to be over-medicated and over-medicalized? Is, is that exacerbated by all of those pharmaceutical ads I see constantly on television? They're definitely part of the program. It's like, it's like a surround sound marketing program has been created. So the constant ads on TV certainly play a role. And the fact that 96% of the new knowledge that doctors received from their medical journals is about drugs and devices, certainly contributes to that over-medicalizing. So what we see is um, that the new drugs are used in the United States more rapidly than they are in other countries. And there's an impression that sometimes is purveyed that this is an advantage because we get newer drugs more quickly than um, people in other countries. The truth is that in the United States, brand name drugs cost three and a half times more than they do in other OECD countries, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development countries, cost three and a half times more. And that increased price doesn't just make drugs expensive and make our insurance expensive. 
it distorts what doctors think the best way to practice medicine is because it tips the balance on the reward to risk ratio of aggressive marketing. So we have a system in the United States where the docs, the, the information that the docs are trained to trust is encouraging them to use new drugs more quickly than in other countries. And it, what it, the end result is that we have an unbalanced approach to healthcare. We spend so much more on medical care and so much less on helping people to live healthy lives. And I, I believe that that's why our healthcare is so expensive, but our health statistics are so poor. Well, what happens when people who've seen an ad on television about a condition they suspect they may have go to their doctor and say, uh, how about giving me this? Right. So um, that's certainly the intent of the ad. And there are going to be some drugs that provide heretofore unavailable benefit. And then they have they do have these disclaimers. It may lead to death. It don't take it if you're pregnant. Right. Although that said very quickly and uh, rather softly. Uh, Uh, Right. 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 Um, You have to remember that the drug company is running that ad to make money. And what they do is they those ads leave consumers with the impression that the drugs are more effective than they may in truth be. For example, Trulicity is a very heavily advertised drug right now. It's for type 2 diabetes. It's not an insulin, but for blood sugar control and type 2 diabetes. And the the, uh, manufacturer of Trulicity did a very large study, and they found out that Trulicity significantly reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease in type 2 diabetics. And they got approval Mm. by the FDA to uh, sell that drug uh, to advertise that uh, benefit of the drug. But what the advertisement never said is that only one out of 323 people who take Trulicity will avoid a cardiovascular event. Mm. And it's a non-fatal cardiovascular event. It's not a fatal cardiovascular event. So you have to spend about 2.7 trillion, uh, excuse me, $2.7 million on Trulicity in order to prevent one single non-fatal heart attack or stroke. The ad doesn't tell you that. It doesn't tell you that you have a one out of 323 chance of receiving that benefit. And you have a 322 out of 323 person chance of not receiving that benefit. That's scary. Yeah. So we're stuck with ads. Um, I, I believe the lawyers who have explained this to me that our constitution is such that the advertisements are protected as free speech. We're stuck with the ads, but we're not stuck with ads that leave people with misleading impressions about the benefit that they will receive from the drug. You note that although more post-heart attack procedures are performed in the United States than in Canada, one-year survival rates are the same. And although we spend more on high-tech neonatology uh, than other Western countries, we have a higher infant mortality rate because we pay less attention to low-tech prenatal care. 
That's exactly right. We've what's happened, Leonard, is we've let the, we let the market determine how we provide healthcare. The market can do a lot of things. It can distribute a lot of goods and services uh, more efficiently than any other way. But one thing it can't do is the market cannot determine what the best healthcare is because it's profitable for hospitals to provide open heart surgery. And it's profitable for doctors to do open heart surgery. And they will do that. Um, and they will do it to advance their uh, personal and institutional financial status. They'll do that. What we need is an outside referee to say how many open heart surgery, how many hospitals we need in a certain geographic area that will do open heart surgery, how many are optimal? Not how many can make money because consumers can't decide whether they need open heart surgery or not, but how many are optimal? And that's a big difference between the United States and Canada. So Ontario and Pennsylvania have about the same population. Pennsylvania has five times more hospitals that do open heart surgery. So we've got five times more open heart surgery being done post heart attack in Pennsylvania than Ontario, but you don't have any better survival rates in Pennsylvania than Ontario. So not only have we subjected many people to surgery that it turns out they didn't need to have an equivalent survival, uh, but we've exposed those people to the uh, long-term consequences of open heart surgery. And the older you get, the more the risk of uh, mental decline after open heart surgery. Um, so <clears throat> in the United States, we have a profit-driven uh, process of healthcare as opposed to a healthcare-driven process of healthcare. And in order to have the latter, we would need to have oversight of the effectiveness and efficiency of our healthcare. We're almost like running a healthcare system with, we have so much less government oversight of our healthcare system than in other countries. And when I say that people balk and say, look, the government screws up everything it does and, and you can't trust the government to do anything. And that's certainly true that in the United States, we have the lowest trust in government amongst the wealthy countries. That's true. And, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But we, if we're not gonna rely on government, we need to develop our own idiosyncratic oversight bodies so that, for example, with open heart surgery, we spend enough money to provide the services that Americans need <clears throat> so that their health can be equal to the health of the other wealthy countries. But we need to curtail the extra spending because we're, not only harming people, but we're wasting enormous amounts of money. And we don't have that external structure to determine the needs of the American people. It's more the needs of the suppliers of the services that are attended to. Well, where would that oversight take place on the local or the state level or on the federal level? What is the situation right now? Yeah, so it could be done um, at any of those levels? That's, that's a very good question. Um, Maryland, I believe it's Maryland, has a program to, uh, it pays hospitals a yearly amount of money to take care of the people in its catchment area. And that budget imposes a discipline 
where the healthcare providers and, and the consumers and the administrators need to get together and decide which services they're going to provide. So that's one example of how it could be done. Um, it could be done nationally. You, you could have national health benefits. In mm. Canada, there are provincial health budgets that, um, that determine how much money there is to be spent and let the docs and the consumers decide how to spend it. But in the United States, we have all this emphasis on marketing and all this emphasis on innovation as the way to, uh, to, to attain better health. And what we don't have is limits on the amount of money we spend. So the amount of money that gets pulled into our system it is determined by the marketing folks and the marketing folks have a single mission, which is to maximize the profits they return to the investors in the drug companies and the startup companies and the other um, the other biotech industries. Well, we so saw. We got, go ahead, finish your thought. No, I was just going to say we have a mismatch between the larger investment market that's looking to maximize return on investment and the health needs of the American people. Well, we saw the suspicions uh, about uh, government and medicine uh, during the debate over Obamacare. Uh, but when you look at other countries, are Americans unaware of the fact that countries that have closer to what we might call socialized medicine, like Canada and, and England and France and Germany, et cetera, Denmark, um, that they have better health care systems than we do and they're less expensive? You know, I... I, if you asked Americans, I think they would, many would acknowledge that they know that, but it doesn't sink in that we're just wasting, we're, we're wasting, it's the, the trillion and a half dollars we spend, it's actually now up to 1.6 trillion. It's like a $4,800 healthcare tax on every man, woman, and child in America to pay for healthcare that's inferior to the other uh, wealthy countries. So the, um, I think Americans would say, yes, our healthcare is expensive, but there's this impression that that expense goes to pay for innovation that pays off in bringing us better healthcare and will result in our living longer, better lives. And that makes, there's no more truth to that than there is to encouraging people to buy lottery tickets mm. so they can get rich a few people will get rich. And some people are benefited by the latest innovation that comes along. And some of the innovation is really important, like COVID vaccines are really important. Um, but for the most part, our society as a whole is severely harmed by this method of uh, allocating our healthcare resources. When I was a poor student in London, I appreciated the fact that if I got sick, I could go to a doctor. <laughs> get treated and 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 uh, still have enough money left over to pay for my lunch that day. Right, right. And people don't realize, I mean, they we hear about the socialized medicine in, in the UK and people have to wait and they're right. not so consumer oriented as we are in the United States. The, the bold facts are that if we spent as much per person as the UK does on healthcare, we'd spend $2 trillion less and people, citizens of the UK, live four years longer in good health than Americans do. So this is not a very good bargain we're getting. 
And when you hear that, you, oh, that may be true that we spend $2 trillion less, and that may be true that uh, people in the UK uh, live four years longer, but we don't want socialized medicine. It's like, huh, what are you saying? You don't want to save $2 trillion? You know, it doesn't make sense. It's propaganda. We need to look at what we're getting for the money we pay. And the health of Americans is just appallingly bad. This is how bad it is, Leonard. Every, the difference between the age-adjusted mortality rate in the United States, this is pre-pandemic uh, data, um, the age-adjusted mortality rate is so much higher in the United States than the average of 10 other comparable countries that 485,000 Americans die each year, excess deaths, 488,000 excess deaths each year uh, because our mortality rate is not the same as in the other wealthy countries. That means in plain English, that 1,300 Americans, more than 1,300 Americans, are dying every day, pre-pandemic. We're dying every day because our health care is so inferior to the health care in the other countries. The richest country in the world. The richest country in the world. But the, the, median, in, the median income earning families are not the richest in the world because they're paying so much for health care. And we've got such an imbalance in the way we distribute uh, the wealth in the United States. You argue that more care doesn't necessarily mean better care and that doctors should focus more on lifestyle changes to improve health. Right. So if we go back to statins, half of Americans age 40 to 75 uh, are recommended by the guidelines to take a statin. Statins have been on the market since uh, 1987. That is 35 years. Hmm. Um, there has never been a study done that compared taking a statin to having intensive lifestyle modification. It's never been done. And that makes no sense whatsoever. The observational data suggests that lifestyle modification will be much more effective. But we need a randomized controlled trial to, to prove that. And the drug companies don't want to fund that trial because they can only lose. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. with Dr. John Abramson. Uh, I want to let you know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a one-time contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of the book that we're discussing, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. Now, um, you examined what you call supply-sensitive medical services. What are they? So that means that the 
the services are delivered more because of the benefit that they provide to the suppliers of the service than the receivers of the service. If we go back to the example of open heart surgery in Pennsylvania and Ontario, we have in the United States, we have a largely privatized system. Um, the hospitals are a mix of private and, uh, excuse me, for-profit and not-for-profit. But what we've got is uh, a proliferation of open heart surgery um, opportunities in hospitals because that provides revenue for the suppliers of the services. You could say the same thing for the large number of MRIs that we do in the United States, that we could do studies that um, determined who is actually going to benefit from getting an MRI and limit the number of MRIs we do. But the MRI providers, the suppliers of that service, are benefiting by not doing that research. We could go to the expensive drugs. Um, for example, Humira um, is a drug that has multiple uses, uses but one of its uses for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. <clears throat> and it costs somewhere around $72,000 a year. And as the first drug for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, according to the FDA-approved label of Humira, methotrexate, which costs somewhere around $500 a year, is the therapeutic equivalent of Humira, which costs somewhere around $72,000. But I only see ads for Humira on television. I guess right. they have to pay for those ads, and we're paying for it when we buy the, 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 the product. That's exactly right. And it, it's been a brilliant strategy on the manufacturer's part. They have um, been the most advertised drug for many years. I don't know if they are this year, Humira. But as they advertised, as they saturated the airwaves more and more, they kept raising their prices more and more. So they got to this amazing price at $72,000. Wow. It's the world's, it was the world's best selling drug at twenty billion dollars a year until the COVID vaccines came along. You say that there's also the near automatic use of medical technologies, such as cardiac catheterization, less because they're needed uh, than because they're available? Because they're available and because we have this impression amongst the public and amongst physicians that medical innovation is a priori beneficial. Innovation is really a business concept, which means replacing old products with new products that are gonna generate more profit. It In other words, aspirin those... has been doing the same job for a long, long time. We really don't need another thing for our headaches? Exactly. And innovation, which we're led to believe, Americans are led to believe that without innovation, we're not going to have health care and we're not going to live longer and we're not going to, and life is going to be bad. And we forget, we doctors forget and the public forgets that innovation is about business. Health, health consequences need to be examined in and of themselves. And the first, if, if you ask me, how do we fix this mess? The first thing we need to do in the United States is to have health technology assessment, meaning we need an independent organization, 
body. It could be quasi-governmental. It could be uh, non-governmental. But we need an organization that gets all the data and that can t tell doctors which new therapies provide new benefits that weren't previously available and whether the cost of the drug is worth the benefit that we get. We're amongst the only wealthy nations that don't have health technology assessment. And it leaves our doctors and the public subject to the marketers to create those impressions rather than to have objective experts comparing the data to determine what the best therapy is. A number of previous guests on the show have discussed how insulin, the a simple and inexpensive drug that was invented almost 100 years ago, has been repeatedly modified in ways that make it a lot more expensive, despite a limited benefit for most diabetes patients. Yes, that's a huge example. And this is one of the, <clears throat> it's so important, I made it a full chapter in, in Sickening. And that's why I brought it oh. up. <laughs> Thanks. Um, the, um, there are type 1 diabetics. Mm. They used to be called juvenile onset diabetics, but it, you can get it at any time. And those folks make no insulin. They need insulin, and most of them will die if they don't get insulin. Uh, they're a small minority of the total diabetic population in the United States, though. Most are people with diabetes have type 2 diabetes, which has to do not with a failure to make insulin, but with the body becoming less sensitive to the insulin that it is making. About a quarter of the people who have type 2 diabetes, which is first you start with diet and exercise, and then you add metformin, and then you can add another drug, and you can add um, other kinds of drugs. But eventually, about a quarter of the people with type 2 diabetes get to insulin. And in the United States, 90% of the type 2 diabetics who get to insulin, get to insulin analogs, which are the latest generation of bioengineered insulin. Uh, the first generation was recombinant human insulin, and the second generation is uh, insulin analogs. Now, the insulin analogs have been marketed uh, by journal articles and by the drug companies hiring PR firms to uh, suggest standards of care that then get picked up by nonprofit organizations um, and the commercial interests have played a large role in creating the intellectual climate where doctors think that they know, and you can't see my air quotes on the radio, but doctors think they, air quotes, know that the insulin analogs provide superior treatment to people with type 2 diabetes, but do, they don't. Do we know it's why diabetes rates have risen over the past few decades? Yeah, that's easy. It has to do with our obesity rates. Mm -hmm. It's it's a direct reflection of our obesity rates. So that's meant which are, more use of, of insulin as a result, even if it doesn't really work in many cases. Um, it, uh, yes, it, it doesn't get to the core problem. That, that is true. And many people can reverse type 2 uh, diabetes by going on intensive lifestyle modification that leads to losing weight and exercising at least five times a week. And people can certainly control their type two diabetes better, but many people can get off drugs 
if they really take lifestyle seriously, lifestyle modification seriously. But the point I want to make here is that 90% of type 2 diabetics in the United States are taking insulin analogs. Hmm. And if we could switch 90% of those folks back to recombinant human insulin, we would save $20 billion a year. And we could reinvest that $20 billion a year in providing community-based lifestyle interventions for people at high risk of diabetes and prevent about half the new cases of diabetes. Just by switching to an equally effective insulin and taking that money and using it in an epidemiologically informed way to help people prevent to help prevent people from getting diabetes. How much of all we of don't this, do that? How much of all of this involves misrepresentation of the evidence? For example, recent lawsuits have addressed the role of the pharmaceutical industry in the opioid crisis. Didn't drug companies misrepresent the evidence on addictiveness in this new generation of opioids? Absolutely. A- a- absolutely. Um, and the, um, the um, interesting thing about the opioids and, and about uh, OxyContin and Purdue Pharma in particular is that they did the same kind of marketing, journeyman marketing tactics, which I will describe in a sec. They weren't especially evil in their marketing tactics. They just had a more dangerous drug. So it caused a huge amount more suffering and, and, and uh, disru- social disruption than ordinary drugs. But Purdue Pharma just used the tactics, the branding tactics that all the drug companies used. And their three key points were uh, OxyContin is so safe that you can treat chronic pain. You don't have to reserve opioids for cancer pain. You can use um, OxyContin for chronic pain, like arthritis or post-trauma pain, and your patients won't be harmed. So use it for chronic pain, not just cancer pain. Number two is that um, it's not addictive and not abusable. And number three was, it seems innocuous, but it is hugely evil that, in my opinion, um, that OxyContin lasts 12 hours. So your patients who are in pain won't have peaks and valleys of pain, and you can use less medicine. The reason why I single out that third uh, branding claim that it lasts 12 hours is A, that the Purdue scientists knew it wasn't true. They had done a study before the drug even came out of gynecological surgery, uh, post-gynecological surgery in Puerto Rico, and they knew that um, about a third of women would need uh, more drug by eight hours and about a half of the women would need more drugs before 12 hours. The reason why that's so evil is that Purdue Pharma told the docs that if people couldn't make it to 12 hours, it meant they weren't getting enough drug and you had to increase the amount of drug. But they knew that it didn't last 12 hours. So they were just (laughs) showing, they, they were informing the docs with this lie that it shows they're not getting enough uh, enough milligrams of opioid, when in fact they're just driving people's doses up to the point where they get addicted and they need even more drug. So they were creating addiction with this lie that their drug lasted 12 hours. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Dr. John Abramson of the Harvard Medical School faculty and the author of a number of books. Uh, the one that we're discussing is Sickening, How Big Pharma, uh, the, uh, oh, how yeah, Broke American Healthcare. Broke American Healthcare and, <laughs> and how we can repair it. It's from Mariner Books. Um, what happened when Biogen's new Alzheimer's drug, Adaheim, was, was officially approved for use by the Food and Drug Administration in June? Oh, boy, that's quite a story. Uh, that shows how far off the rails we are. And um, uh, FDA needs a little help here. <clears throat> Adjahelm is a drug that Biogen uh, developed to decrease amyloid plaques in people who were having early cognitive decline. Amyloid is, um, it's almost like a cholesterol plaque, but it's not, it's a different substance. But these plaques build up in the brain and the buildup of the uh, plaques uh, that you can see on MRI correlate with the progression of Alzheimer's disease. So many studies have, Many, many drug companies have developed drugs targeted at reducing the amount of amyloid that builds up. It's called a surrogate endpoint. They're not targeting reducing the cognitive decline. They're targeting a surrogate endpoint, which is reducing the amyloid. Problem is that none of the 27 studies that have looked at reducing amyloid have shown a clinical benefit. So along comes Adjahelm, which is another drug that reduces uh, amyloid buildup. And Biogen does two studies to determine the clinical effectiveness of the drug. And uh, lo and behold, neither drug shows sufficient efficacy to make it worthwhile for Biogen to continue their studies. And they prematurely discontinue both studies because of so-called futility. But Biogen and the FDA start talking and they decide that they can get an accelerated approval from the FDA. The FDA decides it can grant Biogen accelerated approval based on the fact, based on the improvement in the surrogate endpoint, even though the surrogate endpoint hasn't been proven to have clinical benefit. The short of the story is the application is presented to an advisory committee of outside uh, experts that the FDA convenes who have no financial ties to drug companies. And the outside experts listen to all this data, and they decide that the evidence of clinical efficacy is not strong. The one claim uh, of one of the two studies at the higher dose level uh, produced a significant benefit. It was statistically significant benefit, but not a clinically meaningful benefit. And Biogen's own data showed that 33% more people who took Adjahelm had symptomatic brain swelling and bleeding than the people who took placebo. So we have a drug that provides no meaningful clinical benefit and causes brain swelling and bleeding in 33% more people who take it. Well, the advisory committee meeting looked at this data and 10 people voted not to approve it and one person voted to abstain. So it was 10 to nothing. The FDA then overruled the advisory committee, and approved the drug. But don't the FDI com FDA committees that make recommendations on a drug's approval often include members who have received payments from the company whose drug they're evaluating? 
Well, I'm glad you raised that point because uh, it was it was more than it is now. And this advisory committee had no industry conflicted uh, members on it. So after the advisory committee voted 10 to nothing not to approve the drug and the FDA approved it and it turned into a big kerfuffle, the head of the division of the FDA that approves new drugs said to the newspaper that in order to prevent the emotionalism, her word, not mine, the emotionalism that was shown by the advisory committee looking at Agilehelm, they ought to reverse their stance and allow experts who have financial ties to industry to participate in the advisory committee meetings. That's the way the head of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research proposed to solve the discord between the advisory committee and the FDA. Meanwhile, three of the members of the advisory committee just plain quit. They said they're not going to participate in this process. It's, 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 it's just too, they're ignoring the experts' opinions. And we have just we have just about another minute and a half or so. But I was wondering about the role the medical journals are playing. Are they doing a good job? And aren't researchers at universities and other nonprofit institutions heavily dependent on grants from the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, Second question first is, yes, they are Um, about. uh, Yes, uh, they must participate in drug company funded research or they're not going to be able to do their research. So doesn't that compromise them? Um, in a better system, it, yes, but in a better system, it wouldn't compromise them so much. What was the first party question, Leonard? I About the role the medical that. journals are playing. Don't oh, right. They run the medical articles journals where the referees are, and editors yeah. don't have full access to the clinical trial data that, on which they're based? That's right. That, that's right. The medical journals, when they do peer review, they're in the job of putting the good housekeeping seal of approval on manuscripts that are submitted to them to give the message to doctors that this information has been thoroughly vetted and you can trust it and you can treat your patients based on this. And the medical journals don't have the data. They don't have the data. They cannot make the claims of verification that the public and that doctors believe they're making. And this situation ought to stop. The International Committee of Medical Journal Editors could stop it by having all the medical journals take that move together so no single journal uh, is penalized for taking um, a principled stance. But they don't. And this situation keeps going on. It's been argued that the obvious alternative to patent monopoly financing of research is public financing. You agree? It could be done. We could do it that way. Um, it would be a radical change. I, I mean, I would support that. But I also want to say that you could have the market work here, but you have to oversee the integrity of the market. I mean, even Milton Friedman, the ultimate guru of laissez-faire capitalism, said you have to oversee markets to make sure that the deals that are made are fair. So we've got market failure in our drug development and marketing, for sure. And whether we fix that market failure by making the market work or just saying this is too far gone, take the market out of it and let's let's have the government be in charge of drug development. I think Americans' ethos would be more to fix the market and not have the government in charge. And if we, we could fix the market, uh, but we're not doing that. And we're not doing that because people don't understand the content of the discussion that we've had here today, Leonard, to explain 
how compromised the information that American physicians rely on to determine what the best therapy for their patients is. Well, that's why you write a book, and that's why I put you on the air. And I thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, I've been speaking with Dr. John Abramson of Harvard Medical School. Um, His latest book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Uh, It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much. My pleasure as well, Leonard. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. We need your help to keep bringing you the unique in-depth content that we bring you every day. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It by Dr. John Abramson. The important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopate at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online, give to WBAI.org, or by calling I'll give you that number again, 212-209-2950. Do it right now, please, to play a role in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when Neil Langtart discusses his new book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future. We'll see you then.